Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Take a look at our few announcements there. Uh, offerings, envelopes in the offering box, of course. Andrea's contact number and the Days of Praise and Acts and Facts booklets are here. So make use of those. Um, seems like there's something I'm forgetting to tell you. <laughs> Help me out. Is there something that I missed? Yes, that was it. <laughs> Thanks, George. <laughs> All right. Um, if there's nothing I've forgotten, then uh, our scripture for meditation is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 16, read 5 through 16.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service this morning. George, can I ask you to open for us? Thanks. Heavenly Father, we pray this day that your blessing upon this little congregation would be exactly what we need for our soul. We pray, Father, that you would give us understanding of your word as we hear it and apply it to our lives so that we can uh, serve you in a right way. Give us grace and strength now, Lord, that we would serve you and please you with our lives. Thank you for your salvation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. May stand in. Good morning. Good morning. If you guys will turn with me to page four in your Trinity hymnals, please.
have a favorite hymn this morning? Miss Sheila? Um, I think it's 480 in the brown. I am a soldier of the cross. That one? What'd you say? 349 is in the middle. Okay. Do you have a reason for that this morning? Alright, 349 in the brown hymn.
scripture reading this morning is, again, from John's Gospel, chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 22 through 40, 1656 in the Pew Bible. morning? It's me. Okay. Let's read together. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias land landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus or his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, but not because you saw miraculous signs. Not, excuse me. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must, we do to be, to do, what must we do to do the works of God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign, then, will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's that the Lord would bless the reading of his word. If you guys want to take your red hymnals again and turn to page 469, please. 469. 
This text of scripture, as you know, deals with Jesus' explanation of the feeding of the 5,000 and why it is the people of that experience boarded boats and went to Capernaum in search for Jesus, verse 24. It seems quite commendable that people of the world would search for Jesus. I mean, think about this. It's such a rarity in our day to find anyone who's interested in the things of Christ. To have an entire crowd of people board boats, probably at some expense, and sail across the sea just so they could find Jesus, that seems like an evangelist's dream. Who does that these days? But the dream has a nightmare side to it. If we think it would be wonderful to have someone come to us readily in order to find Christ, our Lord understood that it is a whole other ball game to have people seek Christ for the wrong reasons. This is precisely what occurred on this occasion. Look at verse 26. I tell you the truth, you're looking for me. Jesus is speaking here. I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs. In other words, not because you recognize that the wonders performed by me were signposts. It's a Greek word, semion, pointing to God power in me. That's not why you saw me. You sought me because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Boy, that says a lot. Jesus is saying to the crowd, you are looking on me as your meal. He did feed them, you know, bread and fish. It was a miraculous thing. whole crowd of people with a few uh, loaves of bread and fish that a little boy had for his lunch. But he recognized what they're after. You are looking for me as your free meal ticket. Their carnality is showing through. And so Jesus goes on to say, do not work for food that spoils. Well, what food spoils? Anything you put in your mouth today, anything you buy in the grocery store, anything you bake at home, it'll spoil in time. Yeah, we have refrigeration and things like that to make the food last longer. But even that has its limitations. So he says, do not work for food that spoils. Even the miracle food, which they had eaten a day earlier, like the manna of Israel's day, would spoil and be of no benefit in a very short time. Yet this is why they sought out Jesus. Any desire for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God might give them, verse 27, that totally eluded their perception. They're not looking for spiritual food. They're not looking for... ...and so forth. Brethren, if you think it's hard to win the unchurched and the disinterested person of the world to Christ, how hard do you think it will be to win the religious, the self-righteous, 
those whose interest in Jesus is purely carnal and self-serving. I remind you that the one whom these people sought is none other than the one who is not bowled over and flattered by their inquiry. Our Lord understood that he was dealing with hard cases here. And he proceeds to preach the gospel to them, as we shall see in a moment. But Jesus knew that the words were falling on deaf ears. Now they sounded as though they were interested. Look at verse 28. They asked him, Oh, what must we do to do the works God requires? But you see here their self-righteousness is showing through. They are full of themselves. They're saying something like this. If you will just tell us what we need to do to meet the requirements of God, I'm sure we can do it. The rich young ruler, you'll remember, had a similar response. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark 10, verse 17. Matthew's account says, What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Matthew 19, verse 16. And there is here in our text, Jesus gave a less than enthusiastic response to this man's presumption. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Mark 10, verse 18. Talk about throwing water on somebody's zeal. Just tell us, Lord, what we need to do, and we'll do it. Really? Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. He's saying, you think you can do good if I tell you what to do, and you think I'm a good enough teacher to instruct you in right conduct, but I'm telling you that there is none good but God alone, which runs any, ruins any attempt on your part to do a good work. It blemishes any teaching that I might give you as a teacher in Israel unless you're willing to believe that I am God. Because there's none good but God. So why do you call me good? Our Lord was endeavoring to direct the eyes of this young man, and in our text, the eyes of these self-righteous people, off themselves and on to him. Verse 29. The work of God is this, said Jesus, to believe in the one that he has sent. Why? <laughs> Verse 27. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. At the very least, Jesus was claiming to be sent by God, but more accurately, since he addresses God as Father, Verse 32. My Father, he says, he was claiming to be the Son of God. My Father... So what does that make me? It makes me the Son of God, the one worthy of their faith and their allegiance. 
Well, by now, we should begin to have hope that these people are finally getting the message. Jesus has exposed the motive of their heart for seeking him. Verse 26, motives can only be known by God, by the way. He has challenged their wrong and carnal thinking concerning the food which they sought. Verse 26, he has promised them something better, eternal life. Verse 27, he has ensured, assured them that he has the authority in God to make such an offer, the latter part of verse 27. And he has told them that such eternal life can be theirs if they believe in him. Verse 29, wow. Two, two verses and he's preached a whole sermon. All that is left now for is for the throngs to rush to Jesus and Sign on the dotted line. We are ready for the masses to choose Christ. Who would not want him with all that he has to offer? But wait. Before these people will commit themselves, they demand to see Jesus' credentials. Verse 30. So they asked him, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe in you? They go on. What will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is not very hidden, is it, <laughs> as to what they're asking. We'd like a little meal from you. Can you provide that? If you do, we'll believe in you. You know, our fathers in the past, God gave them manna from heaven. What can you do for us? So here their arrogance is showing through. Jesus has just commanded them to believe in him, verse 29, and to demand evidence that he is worthy of their allegiance. If Jesus can prove himself to their satisfaction, they might be convinced. I mean, after all, Moses gave Israel bread from heaven to eat. Not this business of starting out with five loaves and two fish, verse 8. How about it, Jesus? Can you do anything more spectacular than Moses? If you can, we'll believe in you. Ooh, think about this. Fishing for men, this fishing for men is really tough even for the master fishermen. But tough or not, Jesus keeps throwing them the lifeline. Verse 32, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the people responded, verse 34, Sir, from now on, give us this bread. 
Hallelujah. Finally, these people are willing to come to Christ. It has taken a lot of convincing on Jesus' part, but at long last, his preaching has paid off. We're ready to do handstands in the aisle. But let's not be too hasty here. After Jesus' lengthy explanation of himself as the bread of heaven, the one who can satiate the spiritual hunger and thirst of people and grant them the hope of the resurrection from the dead and life eternal, verse 35 and following. After all of that, we read this. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? They said, in effect, We know the truth about your origin. And your roots are planted deep within the sawdust of Joseph's carpenter shop, not in the clouds of heaven. We know. We know. Here their ignorance and their blindness is showing through. So just when we think these people have finally come around to a commitment to Jesus Christ, the whole thing blows sky high. How in the world are people who are carnal, self-righteous, arrogant, ignorant, blind to the truth, how are they ever going to come to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? It seems like an impossible task. Well, it is. This is the monstrous obstacle which challenges the success of the gospel. How do we, in our preaching, penetrate this dark cloud of willfulness and obstinacy? Which every person has. Spurgeon has been called the prince of preachers. And boy, he was such a preacher. But the prince of preachers? No. We have been studying the words of the Prince of Preachers in this text this morning. But if we can cheat a little bit and go to the end of the chapter and read the conclusion, I have to tell you that the Prince of Preachers, notwithstanding, the response to Jesus' message on this occasion was less than exhilarating. When Jesus pressed the bread from heaven theme we read in verse 60 on hearing it many of his disciples said oh this is a hard teaching who can accept it and verse 66 wow or I should say verse 60 on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Verse 66, from this time on, many of his disciples, that's a 
Yeah, that maybe is not quite up to snuff. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Wow. Did the prince of preachers fail? Was he too hard? Did he forget how to accommodate his message to the needs of the people? Was he frustrated on this occasion? God help our ignorance if we say so. There is in Jesus, in this text, a quiet and assured resolve to declare the truth and to trust the outcomes to God the Father. Knowing that, verse 37, all that the Father gives him will come. This is the doctrine of election, and it is this truth which is the jewel of the success of the gospel. What is election? Well, it is the free and sovereign choice of God the Father to save sinners. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 37 and verse 38 assures us that Jesus came to do the Father's will. And verse 39 tells us that it is the Father's will that Christ lose none of all that he has been given. Hallelujah. None. So clearly we are being told here that the believing people, verse 40, and those who have been given to Christ by the Father, they are those that have been given by the Father. Now on what basis does God make his choice of people who will come to Christ in saving faith? There are those who would argue, and I've heard this argument many times, God looked down the corridors of time and he saw those who would heed the gospel message by believing in Jesus. And so on the basis of the free choice of these people to come to Christ, God chose those people to be his elect. You all have heard that before? This argument finds some support. It is assumed from Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So there's obviously some connection here between those God foreknew and those whom he predestined. But what's the connection? The Arminian brethren believe that it is crucial to note that the foreknowledge comes before the predestination. But the text neither says nor implies that God chose people on the basis of his prior knowledge of their choices. No, it doesn't say that. All the text says is that God predestined 
those whom he foreknew. It's people that he foreknew. But there's more. The order of events here is foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, eventual glorification. And the key here has to do with the link of calling and justification. What does Paul mean by calling? Well, in theology, there is a distinction between the outward call of the gospel, which comes to every listener. There's, that's one. And then there's the inward calling of the Holy Spirit. Not everyone who hears the gospel responds to it in a positive way. You know that. The Jews of our text were certainly very hostile to and highly critical of the message of Jesus. Verse 40, only those who look to the Son and believe in Him have eternal life. Justification is by faith. So then the calling of which Paul speaks in Romans 8 must be that inner call of the Holy Spirit for the end result to be justification. Even our Arminian brethren do not believe that everyone who hears the gospel responds in faith. They don't believe that. We don't believe that. But Paul's use of the word called, followed by the word justified, indicates that all who are called in this biblical sense, are justified. The only alternative is to supply the word all, is to supply the word some. And the Arminian says, yeah, that's our view. Some who are called are justified because only those who respond will be saved. They are the elect. But if you supply the word some to calling, you must supply it to all of the other statements in this chain. Some of those God foreknew, he also predestinated. Some of those he predestinated, he also called. Some of those he called, he also justified. Some of those he justified, he also glorified. You see, this is getting ridiculous. This is a theological nightmare. It would mean that only some of the predestined are given the opportunity to hear the gospel and only some of the justified are finally justified or saved. It's a big problem for the foreknowledge view. But if we supply the word all to this chain, it's equally troubling to be to the foreknowledge view. If all who are called are justified, we have but two choices. Number one, all who hear the gospel externally are justified. Or number two, all who are called by God internally are justified. If you choose one, the conclusion will be that everyone who hears the gospel 
is predestinated to be saved. But we have in John 6 the statement that many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. What are you going to do with that? This being so, that people turn their back on Christ and they turn their back on the gospel, even when they do hear it, how can the election of God be based on the foreseen response to external preaching, the call of the word of God, when Romans says that the calling of God ends in justification? So, this leaves us with option number two which is this, all whom God calls inwardly are the ones who are justified. And also the ones who are predestined or elected. And this agrees with what Jesus says in our text. All that the Father gives me will come, verse 37, verse 45, everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. So we must conclude that God's foreknowledge includes a whole lot more than a preview of the free choices of men. God knows the future because he ordained the future. The future does not happen by chance. It happens according to the ordination of God. What God ordains, this he also knows. That makes sense. God knows from eternity those he will inwardly call These he also justifies. These he also glorifies. The foreknowledge brethren should also read Romans 9 and not stop at Romans 8. There Paul tells us about Rebecca's children. Here's what he says. You know they were twins, don't you? You remember that. Rebecca had twins. Before the twins were born, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You can't do that, God. You cannot determine to love some and not all. If you're going to love, you've got to love us all. Really? Do we deserve the love of God? Brethren, election is the free and sovereign choice of God the Father to love and to save some sinners. Not all. Election is eternal in origin. It's before the creation of the world. So sinner's conduct does not enter into it. This is a blow-your-mind concept. All throughout this text in John 6, Jesus talks about his Father giving the true bread from heaven, which is, of course, Christ himself. 
and of his personal coming to do the will of the Father who sent him. That will including that Jesus lose none of all that the Father has given him. Verse 39. So one gets the notion that a pre-planned mission is in place and that the coming of the Son of God has particular redemption in mind for certain people who have already been previously chosen in the mind of God, ordained to be redeemed, and to be resurrected in the last day, verse 40 and following. And this pre-plan is something which occurred by the decree of God in eternity past. Let me read it for you. Ephesians 1, verse 3 and following. Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the creation of the world. Wow. In love, He predestinated us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and His will to the praise of His glorious grace. It's him, him, him. It's God that's doing these things. Revelation 17, 8 talks of those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world. Let me read that again. There's people whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world. Which implies that there is a book containing the names of the elect. But these people are not in it. Revelation 13, verse 8. It says, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. So here, the elect are not only recorded in the mind of God, but the redemptive sacrifice of Christ is revealed as being from the creation of the world. God is not reactionary in how he does things. It's all pre-planned. And he's working his plan. And he's not taken by surprise by the sinfulness of men. Oh, I didn't count on that. That's not God. He's on top of everything. Jesus also taught that in the judgment his sheep will inherit the kingdom prepared for them since the creation of the world. Matthew 26, verse 34. Paul told the Thessalonian church people, from the beginning God chose you to be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 Wow. But in what sense are we to understand the election of God of his people before the creation of the world? Well, we are certainly talking here of the eternal decrees of God, are we not? We studied them the other week. All Christians believe that God's decree of predestination occurred before the fall of man. But some have postulated that God first 
predestinated some people to salvation, others to damnation, and then decreed the fall to make sure that some would perish. That is so stupid. That's a horrible doctrine that makes God the author of sin. In theology, that's called supralapsarianism. And the super guys are super crazy to come up with that. In actuality, God decreed what was both before the fall into sin and with a view of the fall in mind. Say, well, what's the big deal? Well, when God predestinated people to be saved, he was choosing people whom he knew really needed to be saved. Their need was that they were sinners in Adam. Not because God forced them to be sinners. Adam sinned by his own free will. Not because of being coerced by God. Admittedly, God ordained the fall in this sense that he permitted it to occur. But permission is not coercion. His electing grace is gracious precisely because he chose people whom he knew in advance would be spiritually dead. Very gracious of God. So let's not be lulled to sleep by our own terminology. When we use the word fall to describe Adam's transgression, the word suggests that perhaps an accident has taken place. That's the way we use the word fall. Slip and fall. Lawyers advertise on TV for their clients in slip and fall accidents so that they can use them to sue. Adam didn't slip and fall. His sin was not an accident. His sin was an open-eyed, full-fledged, willful transgression of the command of God. 1 Timothy 2.14 God didn't push him down a hill Adam jumped off a cliff and he he took us with him. See, I wasn't there. Yes, you were. The scripture says, in Adam we all die. Well, well, how was I there? Our seed, our germination was in Adam. The whole human race is descended from Adam. What he did representatively, we were there with him. Paul writes, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12 You know what this is? This is the principle of representation which some despise with regard to Adam. When Adam sinned, the repercussions of his willful disobedience infiltrated the world. Paul says that even the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth 
right up to the present time. Romans 8, verse 20. The objection to Adam's representation of the human race as the federal head centers in the fact that we didn't get to pick our representative. That's what bugs us. And underneath it all, we believe, we believe that we would have done a better job. I want you to think about that. You think you would have done a better job. Our complaint then is that because of Adam's poor representation, we're suffering for his sin, and that doesn't seem fair. We do not like federal representation. One man representing the whole race. I don't like that. Why should I reap what Adam did? But given the character of God when he chose our representative, it was an infallible choice. And for that reason, there was no stacking of the deck whatsoever. Adam was a perfect creation. Let's keep that in mind. He was a perfect man with no sin. Hmm. You couldn't rep your, represent yourself any better than that. Adam was also free with absolutely no coercion from God or preconditioned bias to sin. Thus it is not God's fault that I'm a sinner. It's my own. Now the shouts of unfairness towards God lie, start to die down, however, when we talk about the decree of God to be merciful to sinners. Now you've got to talk about this side of it too. So here, the principle of federal representation does not seem so repugnant to us. See, what are you talking about? For now, in the last Adam, who is Christ, right? Said so in Scripture. We are contemplating a representative who represents us before the bar of God's justice and does so on the merit of his own sinlessness and on the merit of his sin offering of himself. So now the chafing at the principle of representation ceases and we begin to think that this way of dealing with sinners isn't so bad after all. You say, what are you talking about? Let me read it for you. Peter. He committed no sin. He's talking about Christ. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. By his wounds, you were healed. Or he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Oh, I'm beginning to like this representation problem a whole lot better. This looks good. 
Paul writes, know, know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Oh, this representation sounds good. Romans 6, verse 6 and following. Now all of this is not accidental. The decree of God to save people for his name was from all eternity. The sacrifice of Christ was set before the creation of the world. God was not surprised. The number of the elect is fixed, as Paul said. God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are His. 2 Timothy 2.19 Jesus knew it on the occasion of John 6. He put it this way, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Verse 37. Verse 63. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he meant Ju Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Brethren, I remind you that this is not just foreknowledge operating here in Jesus, but it's foreordination. He knew who the believers were because the decree of the Father was set from eternity. Acts 13, verse 48, All who were appointed to eternal life believed. Let me read it again. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. All. Wow. That's the decree of election. Now let me suggest some practical points of the doctrine of election. It will never be wasted effort to be a minister of the gospel, a witness for the gospel. I had a man in my home church where I grew up to tell me, if I believed in the doctrine of election, I would never witness another day of my life. And my response to him was, if I didn't believe in the sovereign election of God, I would never witness another day in my life. The impetus of our witness, our preaching, our counseling, brethren, is that we're guaranteed success. Paul put it this way. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Secondly, election is not salvation. Listen to what I'm saying. Election is not salvation. Election is the decree of God to save. And our ministry is not to labor on the basis of the decrees of God, but to minister on the basis of what God has instructed us to do. The sacred things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. 
And I have known men who have tried to conduct their ministry on the basis of God's decree of election, by which I mean that they know that only the elect will be saved, so they have given up on any clear call to repentance or any call to faith in their preaching. They just stopped doing it. They will not speak to the obvious pagan about his or her soul. They won't do it. This is hyper-Calvinism. Hyper meaning above, going beyond. Uh, uh, more accurately, it's anti-Calvinism. What has been revealed to us is that through the use of means... God calls forth his elect, whoever they might be. Our task is to do what Christ has commissioned us to do, which is to preach the gospel to every creature, regardless of whether or not we can figure out if they are among the elect. That is stupid on our part. We're not God. He doesn't tell us who are the elect. He just tells us what to do to make sure that everyone hears the gospel. And through that means, God will save his people among the world. I don't have to know who the elect are. I just have to know what my task is. Thirdly, and most importantly, not one of the elect of God will be lost. Not one. Jesus said in our text, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Next phrase, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That's pretty clear, isn't it? In his priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus said of his disciples, I protected them and kept them safe. I protected them and I kept them safe. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And you know who that was. John 17, verse 12. Sometimes an inordinate grief sets in upon those who witness the gospel. We grieve inside for all those people who turn away from the truth. And I know why we do that. Because we're compassionate people and we're sorrowful that people won't listen. That they're so stubborn, they won't believe. And some of those may be our own family and that really breaks our heart. But our sorrow must not be without hope. None will be lost. None will be lost who wanted to be saved. Do you know that? None will be lost who wanted to be saved. Hell is comprised of people who chose to go there. 
by their own lawlessness, their own unbelief. God didn't make them lawless. God didn't make them skeptical and unbelieving. There has not been any violation of their conscience or their choices. But if we're going to get to glory, being the sinners that we are, we need God to reach down in His grace and mercy and in His power to turn us around and to turn us away from our sin towards grace and forgiveness and salvation that's only found in Jesus Christ. No one turns on their own. God turns them around. In Ezekiel, God explains it to Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart. That's what people need. A new heart. A new, the heart in the scripture is the source, the soul of a person. The old heart is this, defiant. Don't you tell me what to do, God. I am master of my own life. The new heart says, Oh God, I've made a mess of my life. And I'm in such bad ways, I cannot turn it around. I am what I am. I can't change. And God says, that's okay. I can change you. I can grant you a new heart. And read Ezekiel and you'll find out that's exactly what happened. God granted Israel a new heart and brought salvation when their own energy and stamina could not do it. There's no salvation in keeping the law. The salvation is in grace, and grace comes from the author of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that we cannot effect our own salvation. I'm sure we'd make a mess of it, as indeed we sinners make a mess of everything we try to do. Even the things we try to do in pleasing God, we can't pull it off. We just can't. Because our heart is black. Our heart is determined to be our own boss and no one's going to tell me what to do or where to go or what to believe. I am my own man. I am my own woman. Get out of my life and let me alone. Well, if God does that, if he lets us alone, you're lost. Oh God, don't let us alone. Step in. Rescue us. We're standing on the precipice of hell, ready to fall into the flames. And we need to be snatched from the fiery brands. I pray that you will do that, not because we deserve it, but because you're gracious and a good God and you desire to save sinners. We ask this for your sake, that you would be glorified 
ask it for our sake that this goodness, this kindness, this forgiveness would come to us. Lord, do your work of mercy today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our closing hymn is 466 in Trinity. That's the red hymnal. 466. You guys will stand with me, please. It's always wise to remember that God is God. That means God moves and you are the moved. God ordains and you become what he has ordained for you. The problem with... <clears throat> Arminian theology is that too much emphasis on man. You can do it, you can believe, you can trust, you need. Do you know that the Bible teaches that both faith and repentance, the two qualities needed for salvation, are gifts of God to his people? See, it's not talking about, I hate these illustrations. You know what faith is, don't you? There's a chair. I have faith that if I put 
my weight down on that chair, it'll hold me up. That's what faith is. That's not biblical faith. That's biblical knowledge. Why? Because I've sat in that chair a hundred times. Faith would say, I'm going to sit on that chair and it's going to drop me on the floor. Knowledge is not the same as faith. Now we need to know certain things about God, that's for sure. But the faith that he gives is supernatural because it isn't natural for us to love God in the way the Bible says we're to love him and to hate ourselves in the way the Bible says we're to hate ourselves and our self-righteousness. Nonetheless, there's salvation no other way. I cannot come to God and say, Lord, I'm bringing in my contribution what I know. I'm being as good as I can be. I've given up this and that and this. We hear a lot about that at Easter, don't we? Lent. Give this up, this up, this up. What? Or coffee. Or a steak. What he gave up was his life's blood. His life's blood. It was only through the blood of Christ is there forgiveness of sins and cleansing in the sight of Almighty God. Our Lord, we thank you for your great salvation, your great sacrifice. Help us to see it and believe it. We're so pathetic sometimes. Right. They're not right. We just think they are. We put a lot of emphasis on human ingenuity. Help us, Lord, to see our desperate, desperate, case and our need for you to step in we say all in today's sermon you had to choose us you had to elect us into your family I pray that we will say for any here that is outside of Jesus they think they can be just good enough to Make it to heaven. Help them to see in the scriptures what God thinks of mankind since Adam's fall. Simple statement of Paul. In Adam we all die. That's what we inherited.
show you. <laughs> 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 